You're listening to Ants Talk. Dr. Ellie Lester, Director of Pet Intensive Care Unit and the Animal Emergency and Critical Care Veterinary Hospital, and also Andrew Padula, founder of Padula Serums, a biotech company that produces various animal-derived anti-sera for therapeutic and research purposes, are joining us on the show today. I'm very happy to have them both. Hi, guys. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. So I just wanted to ask you a few questions, if I may. Take a bit of from both of you, hopefully. Most people would assume that being a vet, you would just see basic cats, dogs, birds, but you both have a more serious job. Can you tell us about your roles? Um, yeah, I guess I, I'm an intensive care specialist. So I work in a 24-7 centre in southeast Brisbane. And we, we just see, you know, the, the sickest patients within our hospital from the specialists during the day um, and night and, and also the emergency service uh, get admitted to the intensive care unit where they may go on mechanical ventilators. They may, you know, need, you know, constant constant monitoring of, of other complicated medical conditions, cardiology. Um, it's like a human intensive care unit. They can be constantly on a, a monitor checking their heart rate and their oxygen and temperature and, and everything. It's when they're really sick or sepsis or different cases um, that are critically unwell would come into us. Yeah, we were so actually uh, chatting, sorry, we were actually chatting before the show and that was something I suppose that didn't strike me is, is that it would be exactly the same thing. And I don't think a lot of people assume that. I think that they probably think that, you know, once it's five o'clock, the vet goes home and the pet stays there on machines as such, but it's not the case. No, 24-7 staffing, nurse, you know, 20, yeah, completely staffed around the clock. Um, the mm. equipment is all human, you know, it's a human ventilator. The multi-parameters that we have monitoring them, it's all, all human equipment, even down to the machines that some of the blood anal analyzers are the same that they'd have in human hospitals. So, so listeners, when you um, have to pay your vet bill next time, just remember that. <laughs> and Andrew, please tell us about what you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, my story is probably a little bit different, Ali, in that I graduated from vet school and all I wanted to do when I was at vet school was cows, work with dairy wow. cows and cows. So I actually started working in a pretty intensive cattle um, practice in Victoria. Did that oh. for a number of years and then worked in the UK for a while and um, realised that one of the things that I wasn't getting out of vet practice, when you deal as a vet, you're often dealing with little 15-minute time increments. We mm. see someone, look at their animal, depart some advice, some medication, what have you, and on to the next thing. But I wanted to deal with something much bigger. I, I felt like I, I wanted to put a man on the moon type thing. So I went back to uni five years after I graduated and did a research degree, a PhD, studying wow. cow, cow hormones. And I learned quite a lot about research and running tests and how you answer questions and then in the back of my mind that was in 1998 1999 i'd sort of always had this bit of an interest in snakes but having done the phd i then had some knowledge and a little bit of skill to take it further to actually work out how to make anti-venom and then making some connections with people like ali to um get this stuff out there and, and use. So my mm. last few years have been, I, I used to own a veterinary practice for about 10 years, but I'm now full-time making anti-sera and in particular snake antivenoms, which are amazing in a biological product comes from yeah. 
not one living animal it can be put into another living animal to save its life oh, it's incredible it's incredible that's actually a really surprising thing and i suppose a lot of people wouldn't think of that and realize how prevalent it is um and how much it is needed especially in places like queensland and also victoria and stuff like that um what would you say is the hardest part of your job i'm both of you would maybe like to answer that. I guess, a good, yeah, good question because they kind of balance the, balance each other out. You know, sometimes the tough times are when we can't, you know, we can't get a patient through that we've put, you know, the whole team has put everything into it and, and you know, complications happen or the severity of their illness or trauma or whatever is just too great for that body to survive like humans, you know, we can't, yeah. you can't save everyone. And so that's devastating on the team when the whole team has worked so hard, but then that does the balances out. And, you know, if we as a team know that we have, you know, absolutely done everything to keep, you know, give that patient every chance in a kind, compassionate way and making sure they don't suffer at all. And when it is time either, often we're lucky because we have euthanasia is, you know, when it is getting to a point that we know we can't get them through, we kindly, the owner can say goodbye peacefully mm. versus the still, you know, that's still tough. That's a tough time because you put a lot of time and, you know, just energy and, um, yeah. yeah, your, yeah, your compassion and, and seeing those owners so upset is really devastating. But then on the flip side, when we have something that we think, may not live actually yeah pull through that's an, an awesome win you know for the team and that patient gets home to their to their owners and so it's yeah i, th I think for us to 24 7 being a 24 7 clinic yeah then yeah. it's tough time might have just been on a start one staffing two hours because you you turn up to work and it's not like the place winds down at night if anything it ramps up so actually being able to get out of there and have a, a work-life balance is another story as well yeah, I probably should be asking your partners this question. Um, Andrew, can I just ask you actually, what, what's, so with the serums, et cetera, what, um, so it's ticks and snakes, is that correct? Well, there's anti-serum products available for a whole range of things. Um, the main thing that I'm involved with at the moment is snakes yeah. and tetanus, antitoxin. Okay. Snakes is a really relevant thing for the dog and cat world. Yeah. And tetanus is much more of a thing for the, the horse world. Right. And um, snakes are, yeah, this is the time of year for snakes. Yeah. What sort of snakes are, are we talking about mainly? Well, in Australia, we, we really have five main families of venomous snakes. But in the animal world, really only two families come into play, and that's the brown snakes and the tiger snake. Right. And those two snakes probably account for about 90% of all snake bite cases in animals in Australia. Wow. And people sort of think, oh, humans is really, it's really bad news, snake bite in humans. But the proportion of human cases compared to animal cases is very small. There's at least 10 times more envenomed animals like snakes in Australia each year treated by vets than mm. humans. And that's a that's a puts the veterinary profession in a really interesting position in that we deal with this stuff all the time and the medical profession deals with it intermittently. Mm. Don't forget so, the, the red belly blacks. Don't forget the black snakes. <laughs> yes, they're in the one 
the other snakes in there. Yeah, southeast Queensland where we yeah. are, we mainly see uh, red belly blacks and yeah. eastern browns. There's a few tigers coming up, you know, to the Gold Coast hinterland, but not many. Whereas down where Andrew is, it's a lot more tigers and and browns. And you're in Adelaide, are you? Yeah, correct. Yeah, tigers. Yeah, Adelaide's brown snakes, real brown snake sort of country in. Adelaide, sort of southeast, you'll get more tigers, things like that. Mm. Um, but either way, it doesn't, you don't want to get bitten by any one of those. No, exactly. Well, the thing is too, I mean, the two points is that the difference between humans and, and dogs and cats is that majority of the time they'll actually go out and sort of, not that they're seeking them, but if they see one, they're going to keep, you know, the interest Definitely, is going yeah. to be picked up and they're going to want to find out what the hell that is where with us, we're going to run in the other direction. So we're not likely to uh, be bitten as often. Um, not as often. No, exactly. And yeah. also, I, sorry, with the snakes, um, I, I mean, I've read a lot lately that, you know, this isn't just sort of out on farms and in crops and stuff like that, that snakes are actually now sort of almost coming into suburbia because they're looking for new places and because, you know, there's forests being pulled down and everything like that, they're, they're deciding to come in and live with us also. Yeah, there's a hell, up here there's a hell of a lot. We, we see clients in a little suburban area with a nicely mowed, tiny, small yeah. yard and they'll yeah, have, have their pets envenomated or they'll come in in the morning and find their cat is just completely paralysed so they wow. can wake up and... Um, Yes, in in animals, um, dogs and cats, in with eastern eastern browns, they can need mechanical ventilation for multiple days to save their lives. Because if we we've got a window of time where if we catch them early before they get very paralysed and the venom kind of binds to a lot of places, um, in that window, if we get anti venom in, you know, they may just one night. I've even had them where I've given them anti venom and they've gone home the same day. Um, versus if the, the longer an owner would wait between, you know, potentially the envenomation and seeking veterinary treatment and an antivenom is the more, once they're paralysed, the eastern browns for us on and this area up here, they just stay paralysed and we need to have them potentially wow. go on ventilators to save them. So, which is very different to humans. Humans don't get, you know, don't get as as paralysed and there's a different way interaction between that, that snake venom and that, you know, species that it's envenomating. So have you got any idea why that is? Well, it says a few physiological differences between dogs and humans at the molecular level where how the nerves work. Right. And it seems to be part of the reason why. It may also be part of the reason in that a lot of humans will present fairly quickly to a, a hospital sure. or an emergency centre. Whereas one of the things with animals is we often get quite delayed presentation. It's not unusual yeah. to get twelve hours elapsed yep. between our and the presentation. Um, but just going back to your point about snakes in urban areas, I think a lot of snakes like water, and a lot of house real estate increases in value when it's close to water. Yeah. So there's areas in the country um, where we've made artificial canals and put houses along waterways and that is really clashing with where a lot of these snakes are. A lot of snakes prey on frogs and small lizards and things mm. like that, which are right on the edge of waterways. I suppose too that we're, you know, we're installing pools and water features and all this sort of stuff just to make the house look pretty, but it's also going to be attracting animals that need water. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not. What are, you, what are some of the most unique cases you've seen? Oh, I think up here, I guess the species that we mainly see again with the Eastern Browns and the Red Belly Blacks. With the Eastern Browns, we've actually written up a series of, of them that we've seen from our, across our clinics, across the, the four clinics up here, where they've bled into their lungs, which hadn't been reported before in the literature. So because the snake venom makes them use up all their clotting factors, and actually their blood has no ability to clot. So if you, you know, nicked your skin or we see them, they sometimes can still keep bleeding from the bite site. Um, the, yeah, there's a group where it's not very often, but if they start bleeding into their lungs, we, we've, we've saved a couple now that we've looked at it more and know a little bit more about it. Um, but it, it's, we've had them die in front of us horribly. Um, wow. I guess they're really quite horrific. The extent of, you know, that patient can be, walk into the clinic and start bleeding into their lungs and be arrested, you know, dying within 20 minutes. And there's some pretty horrific snake ones. See, I guess the other big ones we see is the red belly blacks make them break up their red cells yeah. and they can get markedly anemic. So really low red cell counts. Um, and the venom, you know, the venom is, is so damaging to the red cells that it kind of continues to damage those red cells over multiple days and sometimes despite you know we're giving these some of the severe red belly blacks through the research we've been doing looking at blood venom levels and looking at different how it's interact you know what's happening at the red cell level and having a lot more um serial testing to you know outhouse laboratories to have pathologists look at the red cells continually um we've been able to determine that some of these we're actually giving more in more than one vial you know they're getting multiple vials of anti-venom in these severe right. cases and we've um yeah, there's a lot of cases. Even recently, we had six six snake cases present to our Gold Close clinic in four hours. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. This goes to show how important your stuff is, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the more spectacular cases that I can remember seeing in practice was a, a client had two Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, very yeah. nice, friendly dog, and she saw a small tiger snake she recognized as a tiger snake about 30 centimeters long in the backyard and, and she thought the dogs were playing with the snake and because it was such a small snake she wasn't concerned about it. went back into the house came out one hour later one dog is completely flat out on its side paralyzed and the other dog is not looking too good she immediately rushed both dogs into the clinic the first dog died as he was literally coming through the front door of the clinic the second dog was in a really bad way and it it passed away literally within minutes before wow. we could do anything all from a snake less than a foot long. Isn't that incredible? I suppose that's another really hard thing that people don't realize with vets too. It's not just about, I mean, you might be pet owners yourselves and it's not only about seeing this animal that's, you know, distressed and, and you know, in a very dangerous situation and then, you know, possibly or maybe not dying, but it's also having to deal with, the owners and their stress levels and panic and everything else that goes with it. I mean, it's quite, you know, quite a huge feat really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's always sort of three players. I feel with these kind of situations with it's the animal, um, the owner and the cost of what needs to be done to the animal. Yeah. And those, those things interact and some people are really quite torn emotionally with an animal that may well, survive with a few thousand dollars worth of treatment but they literally can't afford it mm. so it definitely definitely challenges people 
I suppose the thing there too is that I think a lot of people don't realise that a lot of the medication and, and equipment that you used, we would use on humans. Um, so it does come at a large cost. And I think that, you know, people sometimes when they do get vet bills feel like they're being ripped off, but it's like, well, no, it's, you know, it's just part and parcel of healthcare for a pet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All our, some of our, our suppliers are similar for the same as humans. All my deal, you know, our ventilators, I deal with, you know, human reps to be able to keep our ventilator equipment serviced and all, all behind the scenes. And I think especially yeah, any, any client of ours comes, once they come out the back, we're quite a big, big hospital. Um, and you're walking out the back, the, the instant response of anyone who hasn't been out there is like, oh, wow, wow. They just, they had no idea um, once they see the workings of a huge big hospital with a specialist mm. center, you know, and even general practice clinics have a lot of stuff going on. Um, and I think the more, yeah, the more owners understand what's, what's happening out the back, the better. See, I'm, um, I have a St. Bernard and I'm quite happy to pay whatever it costs. I'm like, I'm, you know, as soon as I'm leave, I'm like, I'm happy to pay it because as long as he's being looked after, that's, that's all I care about. Literally. Yeah. Um, sorry, continue. I guess there's just one key point that, yeah, for any listeners that if you, if you ever see your, your pet with a snake, um, and they, they seem to have a collapse episode where they might, collapse, you know, vomit, drool, defecate, um, become non-responsive for a short period and then recover. Don't, that is a lethal envenomation. Race wow. them straight to vet because they can come back, especially with our Eastern Browns up here, they come back completely normal um, and owners go, oh, no, they're all right. I'll just watch them. Yeah. And then that, that's the window. If we get antivenom in, you know, it's potentially a vial of antivenom, a bit of fluids and, and, and they're home. Um, versus waiting till they get, you know, all that venom ripping around in this, um, you know, they they get all the secondary com complications and or paralysed and or need, you know, really critical. Um, so definitely, if owners see that in for this snake season, straight to the vet. That's is that is it a are they similar symptoms for um, like a tick, also? No, no, no tick paralysis. So the paralysis tick. Um, down the east coast of Australia, that gets on and it takes three to five days to start right. engorging. And it's much, Andrew probably knows a lot more about this, you know, it, the, the toxins slowly coming out of its saliva as they're feeding. Gotcha. And it's a much, there's very early clinical signs of, you know, being wobbly on the back legs, a change in bark or a change in a meow of a cat. Um, not even just not being able to get up the steps quite as well any they can start presenting with vomiting or regurgitation you know any we kind of at this time of year any patient potentially walking in our doors could have a tick and they we've had them even have you know we've not been able to find the tick and even last week there was a procedure done on um on a dog that we couldn't find the tick on and because it looked like a neurological condition because it was progressing with with paralysis and there's other things that can cause it, it went on to further work up for, you know, potentially something wrong with its brain or mm. there's lots of yeah, anything with respiratory changes in breathing, vomiting, changes in GI signs um, or any sign of not being able to walk as well could be a tick, tick paralysis. Yeah, they're really... And nowadays there is there are good products for prevent you know tick preventatives and um, they've come a long way and 
the group is isoxazolines, which are a family of drugs. So Nexgard and Brevecto are two of the big players. There's a new one on the market. So the yeah, one, there's a couple of, a couple of new ones out there. Symbarica and Cordilio. Yeah, these preventatives are very effective for paralysis ticks and they can now be used in both dogs and cats. And yeah, you kind of, in seeing what we see at the back of a dog, we've just had a little dog come off a ventilator today, or yesterday, and it went on the mechanical ventilator on Saturday. It's had three days on a ventilator to save it wow. from a tick. So would you suggest, sorry, go, go, Andrew, please. I just want to, the, the, the good things about ticks, if you like, is it's pretty much a completely preventable disease these days. Yeah. The medication that animal owners can give, um, it can last anywhere from one month to six months and are extremely effective and extremely reliable compared to say 10 years ago where we didn't quite have the same degree in the last few years is new generation products. When you look at snakes, people often, like I used to work in a rural area where some clients would repeatedly lose dogs to snake bite. And the continual question was, how can I stop my dog getting bitten by a snake or what can I do? And it's a, it's a, the challenge is there with the snakes, but we've actually solved it to an extent with ticks. Mm. So that's what, that's what actually I was going to ask you. So with, say with, uh, for example, my dog, he goes out for literally 15 minutes of a day to a park and that's literally it. That's the only time he's ever out of a house. Would you be still giving him tick medication? If you lived in in a tick area, southeast Queensland, eastern seaboard region of Australia, I would 100% right. be guaranteed that because yeah. I have seen exactly that scenario. I had a client a few years ago that um, owned a block of land in a tick paralysis area, and I worked in an area that was had zones of tick paralysis and geographical areas where it was free. He went for a drive in his car, the animal owner, with his little dog. He went down to inspect his block of land. He said the dog literally jumped out of the car, ran around the block, had a quick wee, jumped back in the car. Then five days later, he brings the dog into me and he goes, I don't know what, I don't know what's wrong with my dog, but it can't stand up. And literally within that 15 minutes of exposure, the dog had picked up the tick and luckily we were able to treat it. And even if it's just a normal tick, it still has an effect, doesn't it? Well, not necessarily. There's two types of paralysing ticks that we get in Australia and where you are in in Adelaide in South Australia you don't get either of those ticks oh that's so (laughs) yeah so paralysis is not going to be a problem but you can still get other types of ticks on dogs that aren't necessarily lethal but function more as a a skin irritant and nuisance like a giant flea almost on the on the dog is there any good way of looking for ticks or, f- f- I mean, cause you, my dog is massive. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. And double, and of course the, the thick double coat, I can't even imagine checking every part of his body. It would just be exhausting. So I guess for us, if we, we've got a suspicion or there's any of those clinical signs, so any breathing problems, any GI tract problems or any sign of being slightly affected and, you know, wobbly on their gait or fully paralysed, we reckon we call it a diagnostic tick clip. So we actually clip off their whole coat, no matter what size dog, cat, because that's, and even then we can still miss them if they're really small and still growing. Or we had one the other day that was right between the toes. They can get in the vulva and the up, you know, know, in in all sorts of orifices. Areas. Yeah, (laughs) lip folds in down in ears. They can be anywhere. And sometimes they've been on and they've actually grown to a point that they've fallen off as part of the life cycle and all we find is a crater. So unless we clip 
we clip and then we systematically search where you can imagine every part, ideally every part of that dog should be, your fingers are kind of scratching through and we're having a system. We, you know, we've done a lot of work with one of the, um, one of the companies who have some of the products on the market in, in actually formulating some tick consensus guidelines for vets so that we have a more standardized way of trying to recommend because I think missing a tick on a patient because in, you know, in 12 hours it can go from, you don't know what's going on. They've got vague signs. We can't figure it out. They can't talk to us. The owner doesn't know. To 12 hours later, it's almost unmissable that it's tick paralysis because more of the clinical signs present. And you can imagine, what, you know, if you're the owner, you think, well, how, how do we miss it? And they are very, you know, ticks can be missed. And now that we have preventatives, it's like we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't really, we should be avoiding them even getting on and, and causing signs. Because I've had a, a tick dog from many of... Uh, three two years ago now um it was uh, owned by a vet and, and amazingly cared for you know and, and it had it was it was just overdue on one of its products and it was the lowest clinical when we score them we score how severely they're affected just for us you know in, in knowing the stage of progression of the, the disease it was a 1a which is the lowest score you can have in tick paralysis mm -hmm. and it aspirated its whole meal like it had eaten and then vomited it up and, and breathed that into its lungs. Um, and it, it spent 10 days on a ventilator to save its life. And wow. so you can go from being a very early clinical signs, yes, to find tick pulls it off to, yeah, deteriorating or acutely you know, aspirating or having other complications from the tick very easily. So not, you know, not even letting them get on is, is ideal. We've got, you know, there is a tick any serum that we do use but it's 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 all about the secondary kind of knock-on effects of the complications that happen from the tick as well that we often they need continual you know 24 7 care to get them through tune in each week for ants talk to learn about real life stories celebrities and everything in between andrew how do you collect or formulate your serums yeah it's a, it's a pretty interesting process and it's uh, it probably the, the methodology dates back essentially to the 1890s. Basically, what what we what we do is we harvest blood from an animal that is immune to the snake, and we make oh, that wow. donor animal immune by repeated exposure to small doses of, say, tiger snake venom over a long period of time. It might take up to a year to generate really profound immunity, and then we can harvest blood from that animal, process the blood, and concentrate up that um, therapeutic fraction, the, the antibody-rich fraction, and then we can just inject a really small dose back into, say, a dog or a cat or, or whatever animal, and um, it passively transfers that, that immunity that that donor animal has gained. This process was yeah, over 100 years ago, and largely um, hasn't, there's not been a lot of changes to the how we make the animals immune, um, but that's the, the, the essence of it. Is that similar to what happens with humans or is it completely different? No, it's pretty much the same. Um, okay. The veterinary products are largely manufactured in a similar way to the human products. It depends a bit on the individual product. Um, the tick antiserum is a bit different though. In Australia, we've only ever had a tick antiserum that has been harvested from dogs. Right. So when people have been treated humans treated for tick paralysis using antiserum it's actually been dog blood that they have received okay. and that sometimes causes problems in people due to allergic reactions to receiving that those dog 
proteins. So technology is there though to move away from these. Maybe in 50, 100 years time, we we won't be relying on donor animals. We might have more laboratory-based methods for making these substances. So what other animals are sort of at risk of the snakes and the ticks? Because I suppose most people just think of dogs and cats, but there'd be horses, there'd be sheep, there'd be cattle, there'd be... Horses, horses do get bitten by snakes in Australia. Um, certainly tiger, there's quite a few case reports of tiger snake envenomation on horses around the muzzle, around the mouth, when they've got their head to the ground grazing. And horses are extremely sensitive to the paralyzing effect of the venom. And in studies done in the 1920s and 1930s, when horses were experimentally given various types of venoms to understand what they did, they, they became paralyzed really quickly. Sheep, um, not aware of any reports in sheep. There's the odd cow report. Um, and we sometimes in cattle practice will think an animal may have just been found dead in a paddock yeah. um, where there's lots of water and we know there's lots of snakes and we sort of put two and two together and think yes. Um, and in some parts of the world, say in Central America and South America, snake bite by some species of snakes in cattle is quite a problem. Right. where they'll be grazing cattle on heavily forested areas which are inhabited by these large biotop species of snakes and they um yes they definitely cause a lot of problems yeah ticks are really interesting as well in that they initially ticks were a when australia was being sort of colonized and developed in the 1800s tick paralysis was was a limiting feature for agriculture in some areas in that some paddocks and some areas you could not graze sheep on because the the paralysis that those sheep would suffer because the ticks live on the grass and on plant material, sheep close to the ground, low body weight animal, they can be severely affected and die. So some farmers lost large numbers of sheep until, and, and calves as well, young calves, are, it's a problem. So it's not, not, just a, not just a dog and cat problem, there's yeah. definitely a livestock production element as well. And I must yeah. say, I mean, I'm from Queensland originally and, I mean, growing up there, I mean, I, I saw more creepy crawlies up there than I've ever seen in any other state. It really is a breeding ground for them, literally, you know. It's, and they're, it's, they're not always human as well. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I see some of those creeping around the clubs, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ellie, I hear that you've been um, getting some unique snake cases. Coming into snake uh, season, can you tell us more about that? Um, I guess, yeah, they're unique in the fact that maybe some of them we're actually looking at a little bit more, a little bit more closely through being older. We can get, we get pre-samples from them to be able to detect blood venom levels. Um, and then, you know, with the anti-venom and then we can get samples after anti-venom to look at how, you know, if we neutralised all the venom and this has never been done in veterinary medicine before. Wow, that's amazing. Um, in human medicine and there's only two places in Australia that can look at blood venom levels. So we then, we process the samples, we, we kind of take off the serum, we freeze it, we ship them down to Andrew in um, Mount Barnsdale, south of, south of, southeast of Melbourne on dry ice. And we're looking, we're actually able to look at some of these cases more closely. And probably, yeah, the first one that springs to mind is a, a dog that unfortunately we, we didn't get through it. It bled into its lungs. So it walked into the clinic um, and been seen. The owners heard a ruckus in the backyard that morning at about 10 a.m. And 
they went out and the dog, they noticed a few drips of blood coming from the dog. Um, they weren't quite sure. The neighbour had had the lawnmower going, so they thought it could have just been barking at the lawnmower. Yeah. Then they investigated a bit more. They found a dead snake. They called the snake catcher to come and ID the snake to see whether they should take it to the vet. And again, that was a delay of more time as well. And then once they, yep, it was an Eastern Brown, it came into the clinic and yeah, as I said, it walked in and, and within the hour it was, as you know, was, was dying in front of us as we're trying to get it intubated and on a ventilator and it had bolus anti-venom. We, you know, they were giving plasma to give back clotting factors post that. Retrospectively, we found out that its venom level was actually 3,600 nanograms per mil. And Whoa. one of the highest reports I'd found in the human literature is about 200. So you can just wow. see some huge envenomations and for us to learn more about treating these cases to be able to say to owners you know yes we know that you know this many vials of antivenom is indicated at this you know on presentation and we're better off you know giving them enough antivenom initially now that we definitely know how high how how high an envenomation of a, a very small it was a springer um, english springer um, you know, so a 30 kilo dog can get versus a 70 to 100 kilo human. So mm. I think some of that, those cases, we really learn something from to be able to help you know, get the information out there in the literature. So by writing it up in papers and yeah. speaking, um, we're talking on ticks and snakes up here at the sunny coast this evening. That's where Andrew's flown up from Melbourne um, to be able to help, yeah, help the referring vets know a bit more about these cases that they're seeing so frequently um, and also, yeah, the whole veterinary team and owners, like we, you know, educating owners about those early signs of snake envenomation mm. so they seek treat treatment sooner and we've got a, a better chance of saving their pet. Um, yeah. That, that was going to be my qu next question, actually. What would be some advice you'd, you'd offer to owners or pet owners? I guess knowing the early, knowing the early signs, so knowing like a collapse episode, um, if you, you know, if they're kind of, uh, uh, there's a ruckus and they're aggressively going in and then, you know, you may not see the snake, but if suddenly they're drooling um, or seeming a bit unwell or not themselves, seek veterinary treatment. We do have a snake venom detection kit, which is the same kit that they use in humans that we can actually run a test on them, okay. even when they've got no, you know, minimal no clinical signs so they're still walking they still look completely normal we can actually do some tests on them both with this detection kit and some blood tests that right. might tell us if their blood's not clotting or if they're breaking up their red cells or if their muscle enzymes going up with some of the black snakes and the tiger snakes that might tell us more that yes it's an envenomation and we should be giving antivenom because we can't do there's no no well yeah there's a there's a few just been able to get that number like we did with andrew there's only two mm. places in australia and that happens months later like it's not there's and even in human medicine there's no apart from this detection kit which is is good but there's you know a few ins and outs of that that's um you know the sooner we can figure out the diagnosis and give antivenom the better is it mm. is it sort of a thing that i've noticed in practice is that particularly with the older generation, there's this sort of belief that we need to see the snake that bit the dog or we need to get it yeah. a, a definitive. But studies have shown that the majority of the Australian population cannot accurately identify the um, venomous snakes we have in Australia, particularly from a distance and particularly when they're in a panicked state. Yeah, yeah. I've had clients bring in, sort of go to extreme lengths to bring in a plastic coal shopping bag full of a snake and i'll open the bag and my first thought is is this thing alive or dead yeah, i <laughs> bet <laughs> without 
have a look at it. And in some situations, some parts of Australia, there's some really simple identification things you can do that will just help you to work out whether this is going to be a life-threatening event for the dog or a less serious event for the dog. Mm. So when, and the thing is too, is that the, the snake's not always going to be dead. I mean, it might get away, correct? Exactly, yeah. A lot of, yeah. A lot of the time we, we just get presented with an animal and no observed snake encounter, no nicely dead, chewed up snake in the backyard. I've got some yeah. unbelievable security camera footage of a dog um, that the owners came home and found the dog gum very unwell but it was filmed, they only went back to the security camera footage of the front yard and there's this unbelievable scene of this dog fighting with this brown snake, wrestling with the brown wow. snake. And that was where the diagnosis came from in that case. Wow, incredible. And I think too, the other tip would be if you are walking in, you know, very scrub, you know, any bushland or, you know, potentially keeping that pet on a lead because yep. they... Yeah. They find something, you know, they know before we even know and they're off and they're after them and all it takes is one strike and one bite. Whereas if you've got a lot more control, especially these some like these last few weeks up here, we've had a huge number presenting. The snakes are really on the move. Mm. Um, Andrew's even saying as it's just this just today, he was saying he's seeing more out in the roads down yeah. down your way. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely just having not as, you know, yeah, maybe they don't get quite as much exercise, but that's better that than um, being, you know, off off lead and and fight coming into contact. And their with natural snake. instinct is to run around and sniff anyway. I mean, so you know, yeah. they could easily come face to face with them pretty quickly. I think dogs also a bit different to human envenomation, whereas a dog will often be repeatedly bitten by the snake when owners describe these encounters mm. the snake will be repeatedly biting at, at the dog and the dog's not going to give up on it no. often until the snake is dead yet when humans get bitten it's often either an accidental thing or some or the statistics i believe is something like 20 or 30 percent of humans that get bitten by snakes have a blood alcohol content greater than 0.05 or something <laughs> so there's a, there's a three that in it and male <laughs> and we're going to run off and we're going to run off and cry you know we're not yeah, going yeah, to try and kill it <laughs> yeah different instinct kicks in um, the other case too that I remember, um, again, a couple of years ago when we started working with Andrew looking at these blood venom levels, there was a little Jack Russell and it, it had, it's, uh, the owners had, they were down the backyard, there's a big six foot Eastern Brown oh. and the Jack Russell kept biting it, but on the body and towards the tail. So they were watching and because the snake was still alive, it kept turning, you know, it kept turning around and biting the dog, but the owners couldn't risk getting in close. Um, and it wasn't until the dog actually had a collapse episode and stopped oh. biting the dog, biting the snake, that the owners could run in, grab the dog, pull it away, and race it to the vet. And so we, that dog, you know, recovered. It walked into the walked into the clinic, you know, completely. Um, you know, you could have just thought, oh well, maybe they were, you know, dry bites, or you know, the owners could have yeah. ignored it. But luckily, they raced it straight in. We got anti venom in immediately, and its blood venom levels are the second highest we had. And so that's the difference. You know, this patient got seen within half an hour, just they put in the car, raced straight to the clinic. Yeah. And we, you know, we're at, it stayed one night in hospital and I sent it home the next day. It never got paralysed. It, its blood started clotting, you know, as they make clotting factors again, post getting anti-venom. Yeah. Its clotting times returned to normal by the next morning and went home. And I guess just the speed of anti-venom administration saved that dog's life. Um, I think with, with animals, again, a difference with humans is that in in humans, we, since 
the late 1970s, early 1980s, we've got quite an effective um, first aid measure with applying mm. a pressure mobilisation bandage to, to the limb. And, and luckily in, in humans, most bites occur either on the lower leg or hand and arm, and they are quite amenable to a pressure, pressure bandage being put on. When we look at animals, we have virtually no first aid options. Most bites in animals will be around the, around the head and, and the sort of upper thorax, upper chest region. Very difficult for um, any kind of first aid measures to be applied by an animal owner. So the, the, the best advice is, yeah, make urgent contact with your vet. Don't delay, don't sit around and wait to see what happens um, because the outcome will either be uh, not good or a hell of a lot more expensive yeah. than if you brought it in straight away. The thought just creeps me out. I can almost feel them around my feet right now. <laughs> the thought and the talk of snake just freaks me out. <laughs> hey, listen, guys, thank you so much for um, talking to me. But could you actually tell us both, uh, tell us about where both of you can be found or if people wanted to look you up, how they can find you? Well, if people are interested in learning a little bit about snake bite and antivenom, um, and snake bite in animals and horses and other species, they can jump onto my website. That's Padula Serums, www.padulaserums.com.au. And that's got a whole lot of links and um, information in there about snake bite and tetanus. That's fantastic. Yeah, and probably the easy one for us is we, we have a, a pet ICU, so PET ICU Facebook page. We also the Animal Emergency Service, so it, it's just, yeah, Animal Emergency Service. Um, they've got a, a Facebook page as well, and there's often a lot of articles that we um, write up as stories that of, of what an awareness thing, anything from, you know, cases we've we've seen that, that month that might be, you know, help, help owners even we wrote up one about um, rodenticide, so um, rat sack and, and how yeah. it can affect and the, the case that came in after that. All sorts of cases get written up from ICU and, and also the emergency service. So that's another option for people to be able to follow what's going on and, and get in contact with us easily. That's brilliant. Fantastic. Um, no, yeah, sorry, my phone's ringing. As I'm oh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> this happens with live live recordings. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, lo yeah, lovely to meet you and thanks for the interview. It was good fun. Oh, thank yeah. you. I, I really, really appreciate it. I, and seriously, I mean, I think that being able to chat to people like you and have listeners that are pet owners themselves, I mean, it, it's such a learning experience and being able to actually go on to further on and actually be able to read the articles and read what you've actually got online is it's not only a saving grace but it's also just a bit of ammunition for us to you know better look after our pets really isn't it definitely yeah yeah, yeah. I think, and especially you seeing some of the grief of you know they're like they're part of the family and they're, oh, they're like exactly they're like kids to some owners and i think we you know some of these things are preventable not having to see a family go through that loss would be yeah, yeah. what we want I mean, mine's, mine's sitting outside the bedroom right now. He's not very happy that I've locked the door on him. I can hear him. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the sort of emotional suffering that some owners go through with the grief with loss oh, of a pet can be amazingly profound. And in, in some ways, I've felt it's, it's a stronger bond that some people have with their animal than with other human beings. It's, yeah. a, it's a different type of bond, yeah. but the, the depth of that bond is... Is, is amazing and I, and I feel that 
as I said, the longer I've been in the vet profession, the stronger I feel that bond is becoming with animals and their owners or owners and their animals. Yeah, we, we now have owners who don't don't leave the clinic. You know, they stay for the duration of their pet stay in intensive care. Sometimes they're... I've, I walked in the other day and there was an owner asleep in the cage. Like, we've got very, very big oh. cages. Um, there was an owner asleep just staying with her pet and we, we you know, they... And we work around them 24-7 because yeah. an owner's pet may not get through. We'd, I'd rather them be in there and be them with them for the whole time that, you know, if, yeah, because then if that outcome isn't what we want, they've, they've had some more precious time to be able to mm. process it and, and say goodbye when the time is, you know, when it's, it's clear we can't get them through. I've thought about it a lot and I think it's because they never actually do anything to hurt us. Do you know what I mean? Like humans will hurt us left, right and centre where a pet will just love you and that's it. And, you know, how can you, how can you sort of begrudge that really? (laughs) Maybe dogs, cats may be a bit different. Oh yeah. (laughs) I've had both, trust me. And yeah, dogs are a completely different (laughs) kettle of fish. They really are. Yeah. No. Oh, well, yeah. Thank yeah, you. Well, have you got something useful out of that? You oh, no, edit? we definitely did. Definitely. I mean, some great points there and I really, really appreciate your time. And I'm sure the listeners do too. No worries. Yeah. No Thank worries, you. Yeah. Have a great yeah. day. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Live, love and stalk.